hello and welcome to, to Chats Over Chai with, with myself, Lisa Singh. I'm the CEO of the Australia India Institute. And I'd like to start by acknowledging that we are meeting on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to their custodians of this land who have been the custodians for thousands of years and our respects to their elders past and present. Chats Over Chai is uh, in the, part of the Australia India Institute's podcast series and part of our launch of India Matters, celebrating 75 years of India's independence. And today I'm extremely excited because we have, I have with me uh, the Honourable Dr. Palanevel Thiarangan, who's Tamil Nadu's Finance Minister, who is here visiting us in Melbourne and will be telling us what makes Tamil Nadu India's investment hub. So welcome, Minister. It's fantastic to have you here. For those of, that don't know, Tamil Nadu, of course, is, in, is a state in the southern part of India. It is the country's second largest economy, third largest exporting state, and currently contributes nearly 9% of India's net exports. And over the years, it has attracted tremendous investment and emerged as the number one investment destination in the first nine months of the financial year of 2022. No doubt, Minister, to some of your own efforts in that sense. Uh, it's also a, a state which is the leader of renewable energy, and we'll, we'll delve into a bit of that today as well. I think the list of Tamil Nadu as a state's achievements goes, goes on, uh, and no doubt with a concerted effort from, from the Tamil Nadu government. I had the uh, privilege of visiting Tamil Nadu during April this year, and I must say, Minister, I was hugely impressed in my few days there in Chennai, I visited some excellent education institutions. I visited IIT Madras, uh, University of Madras. Uh, I even went to the Roger Muthia Library yeah. uh, and learnt about the life and contribution of Roger Muthia. It was very inspiring. And I also had the privilege of meeting the IT Secretary of Madras, uh, Niraj Mittal, who shared with me some great achievements of the state. And I witnessed, of course, the cosmopolitan culture of Chennai that it has to offer, offer deeply rooted in Indian traditions and values. And I do hope to visit again soon and meet you there as, as well. So I want to congratulate you, First Minister, on the state's tremendous performance as the number one destination in India and welcome you here to the University of Melbourne and also to Melbourne, which I understand may be your second visit yes. uh, here. And I wanted to just start by asking you, how have you, other than the cold weather, how have you found Melbourne? Yeah, it's a beautiful city. I think it has its own unique culture. And that's always uh, interesting and, and enlightening to see how, you know, um, cultures develop, how people come together. And uh, every place is unique. Some places stand out more than others. And so Melbourne, of course, has a very unique character. And I've only been here, as you say, twice, once for 24 hours as a banker and this time for 48 hours as a minister. So though it's too brief, it gives you a flavour and, of course, it's a wonderful campus. So well, I'm so happy to be here. We're so pleased that you came, even though it is a short two-day trip. I think you, you, you're getting a taste of the cosmopolitan side of Melbourne and, and how that pretty much matches a lot of the cosmopolitan side of Chennai. Yeah. And you've also spent time with the Australia-India Youth Dialogue yes. and their incredible delegates. I had the opportunity yeah. to also meet them as well. How have you found that? 
Actually, I, I spent uh, only one evening, but with the, I think the previous cohorts. It wasn't the actual event, but it was the, the, in the emerging, emerging leaders. leaders. Yes. It was fascinating because, you know, it was people who have some experience who have already done a lot of things in their life, yeah. who have uh, in many ways broken new paths. And so it was a very interesting dialogue. It was a bit uh, surreal because I'd just flown in from the UK. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, close to midnight when it ended. But it was a lot of fun and enlightening for me and I hope uh, of some value to the delegates. Yeah. Yes, I, I've been watching from some of your Twitter feed, your your trips to the UK and the US and certainly really impactful for you as a minister being able to to talk about the some of the activities and reforms that you're doing as a minister. And I'm sure you must be feeling slightly jet lagged right now. So thank you for, for spending time with us here at the university. But I'd like to sort of delve a little bit into that. I mean, in terms of Tamil Nadu, firstly, we know that the, the central government, the Modi government has, you know, uh, aiming to make India a $5 trillion economy by, by 2026. No small feat in that. But we've also heard that Tamil Nadu or Tamil Nadu's government uh, has expressed big ambitions for the state, hoping to make it a $1 trillion economy by 2030, which equates to a roughly one-fifth of, of India's total economy. Uh, I know that you, you were talking about this with Lord Ahmed in, in the UK, uh, very ambitious goal. But what were some of the outcomes from that discussion or, you know, how, how was that perceived by the UK? How are you seeing that as, in terms of the Tamil Nadu government? Are you on track to, to yeah. meet this target? I must first say that, you know, all these are nominal uh, statistics, right? So in that day's money. Yes. And so the difference between 2026 and 2030 can be actually quite large. Because if you take uh, real growth adjusted for inflation, uh, India, if it is administered properly, should grow between 8 and 10%. Then you add in inflation, you know, in the age that we're in, we're probably in a higher inflation age than we were the last 15 years or so. So let's even say conservatively 6%. So you add 8 and 6 and you're looking at 14, 15%, uh, you know, between 8 and 10 and 6 and 7. So 15% compounded for four years is a big number. Yes. So I'm not sure our ambition is to be 20% of India, but we're probably already 10 11% of India. And if we achieve our target, we'll probably be more like 15, 16. But our target is uh, unique to us and set by our chief minister. And the target is, I mean, it calls for roughly 14% of, you know, or thereabouts nominal growth, including inflation. I'm happy to say we hit that the first year in office and we're on track the next two years. But, uh, you know, at some level, there are many macro variables outside our control that will affect this. But we have a couple of advantages. One, we're coming out of COVID and coming out of uh, Though Tamil Nadu never went into recession, India went into recession, pretty deep recession, mm -hmm. uh, minus 7.6% growth, but we were about plus one and a half. So and that's still low. why do you think that was? Why did Tamil Nadu sort of survive yeah. that, that pandemic, you know, recession? I think two things. One, always um, either good events like deregulation and opening up of trade and so forth, or bad events like recessions or... Uh, crises always exacerbate inequality 
right? Some people are better poised to ride out the storm. It's just true of nature. In our case, we did something more than that, which is that we actually stimulated demand quite a bit. It was our campaign promise the chief minister made. And so we did almost $2 billion, which is big by our size. Our budget is only about $30 billion or so last year. So we did about $2 billion, excuse me, of, uh, of additional stimulus. And I think that helped us a bit make sure that uh, people consumed. Uh, I mean, we had otherwise a resilient economy in many ways. I can give you some statistics, but uh, the approach to keeping the bottom of the pyramid kind of elevated uh, during difficult times, I would say, was one of the variables. The other is that, we, as I say, structurally, we were better poised to ride out the crisis. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think those factors combined to do that. So my point is, though, that even coming off that gives us an advantage. And so we think we're on track uh, to get to one trillion in 10 years. Uh, we we're already about 320 billion last year, so we still got a ways to go. But um, we have a more concrete plan being developed. I've announced in the budget this year that we're going to set up a kind of outside consultant, like like our predecessor did, mm -hmm. including fund, you know, including uh, global agencies like uh, the World Bank or IMF or the ADB or uh, the AIIB to help us get more concrete. What sectors? What periods of time, what growth rate can we expect given what we think will be the macroeconomic trend? For example, now we benefit from the diversification away from China. Yeah. Right? In a big way, many countries are trying to uh, broaden their reliance on outside suppliers and the logistics supply chain. Mm. So in that sense, uh, you know, we have many uh, tailwinds, but those won't last 10 years. Yeah. So we've got to have a more concrete plan. We're in the process of developing that. Mm. Well, those structural reforms are, are clearly, you know, ensuring that Tamanadu is is set up for the long term. And I think when, when you talk about the diversification of of supply chains, I mean, that's a huge focus now in Australia yeah. uh, and very much part of our, our pivot to India. Uh, of course, we recently signed um, an interim free trade agreement with with yeah. the Indian government and you know, looking forward to that progressing into a full free trade agreement. And there are so many opportunities that I witnessed during my time uh, in April in India at the state levels where states are just already doing so much. And I think Tamil Nadu is, is certainly the leader in that space. But of course, there's competition a bit between the states and India as well. And I think looking at the tech sector, for example, uh, or even maybe the renewable sector, I mean, Tamil Nadu is incredible. In its, in its renewable footprint, uh, surely that's not just happened other than it being obviously a, a good place <laughs> weather-wise. Yeah, I mean, some of it is uh, natural advantages, as you say, a lot of uh, wind. We're at the tip of the peninsula, so we have the monsoon winds and the seasonal winds. We also have high insulation levels, so we're good at solar. Uh, we're now looking at offshore wind, which is the big emerging technology and a little down the line wave energy. We have a large coastline. So some of it is just the benefit of being in the right place. Some of it is conscious strategy and conscious policy. And one of the things that has been a hallmark of Tamil Nadu, actually going back 100 years before it was called Tamil Nadu, it was called Madras State. Mm -hmm. And before that, it was part of what the British administered as the Madras Presidency. And ever since the partial devolution of power in 1920, under what was then called the Montague-Chelmsford reforms. 
we've had remarkable consistency in policy. So though many parties have come and gone, and, and especially in the last 40 years or so, almost every five years a new party came to power and went between the two major parties, some things stayed the same. The focus on education, the focus on inclusion, the focus on women's rights and empowerment, uh, the focus on providing opportunities for all communities because we come from a society that's a couple thousand years old, a culture where there was some bad aspects of it. There was a stratification of, of uh, you know, uh, of the caste system, caste system. And, and hierarchy. So to break the bounds of all of those, we've had consistency in policy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, you know, for those who can read about it a bit, there was only about 30 years or so that the state as we know it now was not administered by all parties that adhere to the same philosophy that we call the Dravidian philosophy mm. or the Dravidian model. And I was those, going to ask yeah, you about yeah, the Dravidian yeah. model because it's, it's clearly unique yeah. in India. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. as you say, politics aside, it just continues and creates yeah. that sort of value set for Tamil Nadu to yeah, have really good outcomes for women's rights yeah. and for equality for all. Uh, I, I find that very refreshing, you know, that that things don't sort of break down over over politics. Um, if you look here in Australia, you know, one of the things our new prime minister, who's only recently been elected, uh, um, uh, Prime Minister Albanese, has said, is we want to put an end to the climate wars. Yeah. That has been a real political um, football here in Australia for too long. Uh, whereas in Tamil Nadu, you have that consistency uh, based on, as you say, the the values that, that, that last throughout politics. So. Yeah, you know, I think well, there's two ways of looking at that. One, I think, is that, uh, as I was saying, except for 30 years, it was administered by people who professed the same values. So it wasn't that big a deal. Politics was not about left or right or policy differences. It was mostly about personality issues. In fact, good or bad, that's what it was. But even those 30 years when the Congress Party uh, then ruled Madras presidency and some time Madras state. Uh, the Congress of Tamil Nadu and Madras adhered much closer to the Dravidian philosophy than to the Congress of the rest of India. For example, the Dravidian parties nationalized the kings and uh, historic temples to ensure preservation of the culture and uh, uh, equal access to all castes because in the old system certain people mm. are not allowed into mm. the and uh, the Congress not only did not reverse that when they came to power, they doubled down and they said, you know, the Dalit Temple Entry Act was enforced by the mm -hmm. Congress in the 1930s. Uh, so, you know, in education, the compulsory elementary education of boys and girls was legislated in 1921. When the Congress came to power, they doubled down on that and said, you know, we, we expand the free meal scheme to all children in all schools, uh, you know, who meet the income criteria. So. That was the history and the continuity. Uh, the flip side of that, I think, is that uh, results matter, right? If you have a philosophy and it produces good results, it's easier for others to adhere to that and not change it. Mm -hmm. When you have things that are failing, everybody wants to come and fix it. Mm -hmm. But if you continue to show better and better relative to you know, the Indian average or at an absolute level in terms of per capita income or social development indicators or human development indicators and you know then why would you change it so 
I think that is the fundamental difference between the Dravidian model and many of the other ones, including the kind of Hindutva model that is now in vogue in a lot of the BJP states and, and attempted at the union, is that they have not been able to produce results. You know, my philosophy is, okay, it's the basis and the motivation for me in, to be in politics. But if year after year after year, the results come poorly, surely I should start questioning whether I'm on the right track. And if decade after decade, you know, the results come well, surely I must double up my commitment to certain values and to certain systems. Now, one could argue that the cause and effect relationship in many things in life is not very clear. But in this case, it is 100% crystal clear because we've had such an advantage for so long uh, that it's, it's, it's a no-brainer that it's really about empowering women, about inclusion, about giving all you know, sections of society and, and uh, a path and access or opportunity. And if you do that, you get much better outcomes. And if you don't do that, you get not so good outcomes. So, yeah. you know, that's beyond debate, I think, at this point. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's refreshing, it's exciting to, to hear you, you talk about that and to talk about the uniqueness of, of Tamanadu and what it produces in that sense. So just looking at your finance ministry, uh, you've got, again, some, you know, bold reforms that you want to make in your, your ministry uh, over the next couple of years. And driving investment, of course, is part of that. Um, you've got an ambitious plan, uh, but I'm sure you're definitely, I know you're the right person for the job. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I probably would look at it at three levels. The first is that the fiscal kind of position of the state in terms of the deficits, the debt to GDP ratio, the interest to revenue ratio, uh, which had been improving phenomenally from 2003, 2004, which was the year that both the union level and most of the states passed the uh, fiscal uh, responsibility acts, you know, what they mm -hmm. call the FRBM, Financial Responsibility and Management of Budget Act in Delhi, and the equivalents around the state, which said you shall not have revenue deficits and you should limit your fiscal deficit to 3% of GDP and had some other criteria, you should have a medium term plan, etc. But these were the two big mm -hmm. uh, benchmarks. And between 2003 and 2014, Tamil Nadu consistently met or came very close to meeting those benchmarks. And the statistics improved dramatically. The debt to GDP ratio came down from 27, 28% down to 16, 17. The interest to revenue ratio came down from 2021 down to 10, 11. And then of course, things started to get a bit haywire because the lady who was otherwise elected first was incapacitated and then she died. Yes. And so, you know, people who had been not directly mandated by the, by the voters were afraid of really making any reform or executing the plan she left behind. And so the, the, the fisc deteriorated dramatically. And we went back in six or seven years to as bad as we'd been, you know, 25 or eight, 18 years ago. And we're back to like 27, 28% debt to GDP. And we're back to 20, 21% interest to revenue. So the first job was to fix that. And... Uh, you know, when I came, I thought it would take us five years, but now I'm very comfortable that we can do it in three years because in the first year we were able to reduce the fiscal deficit by over 1% from 461 down to about 350. And we are able to get control of the system in other ways. So as a former banker and, uh, you know, administrator of large banking operations globally, I now have an enough understanding of the system to know that this can be done. 
your banking so, background must be so useful uh, for a finance minister. Very much so. But the second uh, ambition I've said is that in two years, I want to build the best and most professional and kind of technology platform supported finance ministry in the history of India, which is not that hard because there's not been that many before, but a small portion of what I would have seen in a large global bank to have real time data, to have dashboards, to have, you know, institutional memory, continuity, um, you know, uh, checks and balances. And that includes, for example, I've, uh, you know, announced a new post like director general of audit beef up the internal audit. As you know, we also follow the British parliamentary system. If you wait for things to go to the external auditor, which is the CAG, then by the time those get resolved, it takes 10 times the effort. They have to be placed in the house. All the members have to get it. It has to go to a public accounts committee. They have to. So if you can quell this before it goes to that, not only is it good governance, it's also efficiency. Absolutely. So my second ambition was that I would uh, create this kind of platform and the, the most kind of professional infrastructure. I've done that at other places, so I'm fairly comfortable I can do that. But my third ambition really is to change the culture of the place. And that's always the hardest. Thing. I was going to yeah, say, yeah. That's, that's the hard one. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, in some ways I've been fortunate because many of the uh, senior bureaucrats in my department have never served in finance before. So they don't really have a bad uh, kind of, scare, you know, bad, <laughs> bad practices to break. So, um, you know, we'll see how it goes, but I'm fairly confident that we can fix the fisc in two years. We can certainly put in much more sophisticated systems than we've ever had. After all, India is a leading technology provider to the world, right? Absolutely. And, um, uh, and then we'll see how the culture change goes. Yeah. Well, look, I think that that is an ambitious plan that I can see you executing because, you know, as soon as you talk about technology, I mean, that, that was my experience of visiting uh, some of the states, southern states uh, in India, is that the, the technology um, footprint in these states is, is just going through the roof. And Tamil Nadu is certainly a part of that, particularly if we look into, well, you talked about fintech, but I mean, looking more broadly into um, clean tech, uh, looking into to sort of all sorts of software developments. Um, but in the clean tech space, EVs, I know, yeah. you know, uh, a part of your sort of ambition and plan as well. So what makes Tamil Nadu so good as a, as a state to, to go down into that clean tech space? Well, I would say partly the economic circumstances, right? We are at double the national uh, per capita uh, GDP or income. It's about $4,000 a year, which is slowly reaching middle income kind of status. We have an average education of about uh, high school graduate and almost 52% of our college age children enroll in college. And it may be too high. So you're producing right. all the talent. Yeah. So we have the right level of it. And, and therefore, they are aspirational. And yeah. therefore, we have to plan for those kinds of expectations. We are not just now about sustenance or providing the basic needs. We now have a society that's, and as you know, you know, the Tamil diaspora is not only uh, quite large, but is disproportionately well represented in kind of the top CEOs and, you know, in, in banking, in technology, in mm. many parts of the world. Uh, there's yeah, a huge Tamil. You know, Tamils are about 6% or 7% of the population of India. If you take uh, the top tiers of uh, global companies, they're probably 30% of all Indians. Mm. 
Very you know, overrepresented, yeah, 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 right? You know, by, by five x. Incredible. So that helps us because it also it sets the path down. Is that you know people have those kinds of aspirations, those kinds of what can I say, uh, forerunners, forefathers, and they want to reach that level of uh, of uh, output. And so we have to drive for that. And that means being leaders in clean energy, being leaders in uh, automation, innovation, in, uh, you know, uh, global connect, yes. if you will. So, uh, for example, our uh, prime minister has announced that India wants to be uh, carbon neutral by 2050. And so the point I've been making is if India is going to get there by 2050, Tamil Nadu has to get there by 2035 or 2040 because we are that much ahead of the Indian average in all other aspects and we are still the number one renewable energy state. So partly better storage technology, partly emerging technologies like offshore wind and wave, uh, you know, partly better um, storage, not just in lithium or other batteries, but in other ways of storage like pumped hydro storage or, you know, geothermal stuff like that. So I think there's a potential to, uh, to get there in time relative to the Indian goal. Yeah. And these are ways that both you know, our countries can work so closely together in terms of decarbonising yeah. both of our economies because, yeah, we've all signed up uh, to these targets to reach that. I want to talk about one of the challenges, though, because clearly, you know, Tamanadu is actively promoting information technology yeah. in the state and you've got this, you know, objective to become the ICT hub of South Asia creating that real knowledge-driven ecosystem that's required. And as I said, I went to IIT Madras and you've got some incredible um, uh, educational institution, institutions to provide um, the, the sorts of graduates needed to achieve that. But something I also experienced um, is the challenge that there really isn't enough um, talent coming through the educational system, be it here in Australia or in India, uh, to meet the demand of of these of the tech sector yeah. um, you know this is an ongoing problem for both of our countries how are we going to to meet this well, this challenge in in india or maybe not even india in tamil nadu we have a bit of a unique problem in the sense that we certainly have the demographic dividend we certainly have the number of people that we need or more the problem is the quality of education is not uniform and in many cases inadequate frankly, and the match between what the economy needs and what the system produces is not there. You know, I've lived in other parts of the world and in particular in the US, it's, it's a brilliant uh, connectivity between the education system and, and the real economy. And so you, institutions adjust and ensure that what they're producing is what the economy demands. You know, there's uh, a lot of funding that goes from industry. There's internship programs, there's fellowships, there's research projects, there's, you know, a lot of universities get funded from the economy, not from the government. And so the connectivity is there and the, the, the adjustment and the fine tuning happens continuously all the time. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are, you know, broader kind of data systems like the Bureau of Labor Statistics that tell you what's there and the commerce departments that tell you what the projection is. And then people can read these and adjust their career choices to what the demand is going to be. In India, we have none of that. Right. In Tamil Nadu, we're just about starting. So it is one of the uh, chief minister's kind of pet projects that uh, we bring in this professionalism, skilling, and starting young on the new cohort, starting with much better career 
counseling and guidance at the schools, at the government schools, not just for the students, but for their parents. Because you see, what we have is this kind of explosive growth. When I graduated engineering college in, in 1987, the state of Tamil Nadu produced about three and a half to 4,000 engineers. Now, whatever, for almost 35 years later, it produces 150,000. Oh. <laughs> and so, you know, both in terms of professors to teach them, but more importantly, with so many first-generation graduates and first-generation high school graduates, their parents are ill-equipped to guide them in career choices and, and uh, kind of going forward. And the economy has become much more diversified. It didn't used to be. So now we want to focus a lot on educating first-generation students and their parents about what the economy needs, what kinds of compensation models and, and expectations of future growth will you have, and what is the kind of professionalism required to compete, not just at a national level, but at a global level in these things. It's not just enough to get good marks. You have to have all these other characteristics about perseverance, about punctuality, about you know discipline, about all these things. So it's a huge effort, but we are again partnering up with people. For example, we're signing with Germany, which has a very unique apprenticeship and skill development program um, and model, shall I say, for their country. And we want to try and bring some of that. Uh, we're talking to other places that can bring, you know, with the UK, we're talking about uh, with the British Council, much more, you know, uh, though we have more English speakers than most, they're not necessarily of the global quality in some cases. So we're going to fix it. So I think it's a question of matching the, the output of the educational and skill development system to what the economy needs. This is changing all the time. So you have to be able to keep kind of forecasting and predicting this. Mm -hmm. And then you have to adapt this to that. And we've not been doing either, frankly. Mm -hmm. So we don't yet have a problem where we don't have enough human beings. We don't have people with the right skill. Yeah. So we're trying to fix that. Mm. Well, I mean, I would, I would love to see, um, you know, some, some more mobility between both of our countries in this space because we have a number of Indian ICT companies right here in Melbourne, um, like Infosys, Wipro, um, TCS in Sydney. And of course, we also have Australian tech companies like Atlassian who are in Bangalore yeah. and want to expand to into other states, yeah. uh, so including Tamil Nadu. So I think um, there's lots of scope for growth for, yeah. for both of our countries on, on this issue because we're both facing the same challenge of of not enough. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, it's a slightly take, different, I think, yeah. in the sense that here it's a very small and shrinking population because you've reached that level of economic activity. There, it's that we don't have the right people learning and doing the right things. Mm -hmm. So the same, it's the same net effect, but for different causes. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think, in a way, we might be complementary because I think if we can fix our problem, mm -hmm. uh, we can actually help solve your problem mm -hmm. in, in that sense. Yeah. Well, at the Institute, we hope to play a role in helping tell a little bit about the India-Australia tech story because it's certainly one that is, is growing. We all know about the US-India tech story, uh, but we also have our own, our own companies here, Indian companies, Australian companies. So it'd be great to sort of build on that and ensure we have more, more sort of problem solving that we're talking about today. So at the Institute, we're hosting a a leadership dialogue in September in India where we will explore this a lot further. Um, I did want to just ask you, Minister, um, a little bit about um, 
you know, last November when you launched your fintech policy. Um, it was obviously aimed at making Tamanadu a global fintech hub. You talked a little bit about your reforms in that space. Um, but why do you, when we talk about fintech and its importance, how important is that in terms of you achieving some of these reforms you want to achieve? And, you know, do, do you see any sort of challenges along that journey in, in terms of the bureaucracy or in terms of, as you say, those not experienced to the change that you're trying to implement? Yeah, I, I would say uh, far beyond the government itself, you know, and far beyond our state itself. One of the reasons we wanted to be the fintech hub is that as of today, though Karnataka and Bangalore are in some ways a different scale, and certainly in unicorns and startups and the ecosystem than uh, Chennai. In the financial services industry, Chennai stands head and shoulders above everybody else. So all the way from, you know, trust and custody banks like uh, Bank of New York, through commercial banks, through investment banks, through asset managers, to, I mean, my own former employer, Standard Chartered Bank, has probably 10,000 plus employees in Chennai, all the way to hedge funds, you know, like DE Shaw. Uh, Chennai has probably the predominant kind of financial services, uh, global capability centers. And we still think there's room to move up the value chain on those uh, centers. And as the emerging technology comes and as we move from kind of more mundane processing to, uh, you know, what fintech really does is it increases reliability, integrity of the data um, and reduces the operational risk in the system compared to a traditional approach to uh, technology support to financial services. So we think we're poised to kind of take advantage of that. And that was one of the reasons, for example, to my, uh, to my recent trip to New York, where I ran into some old friends and some new friends about, you know, moving up already large operations in Tamil Nadu and uh, using the new incentives we've offered, where we've offered land in a prime urban location and to set up a fintech city uh, to provide support and subsidies to help them uh, choose this to be the new hub. So that, that's, that's probably a separate ecosystem. Most of the reforms I'm doing in my department are probably still a couple of steps away from that level of sophistication. Uh, we're still doing the basics, unfortunately. So maybe in a couple of years, I'll have a different view. Well, I would love to follow up with you in a couple of years and see how uh, Tamanadu is progressing in terms of these reforms. It's clearly a very exciting agenda that you have as a minister, uh, making a difference every day for the people of Tamil Nadu and indeed for India as a whole. Uh, and we hope that uh, we can have you back here at the University of Melbourne for a longer time next time and also at the Australian Indian Institute. But uh, in the meantime, hopefully I get to come visit you in Tamil Nadu very please, soon. Please, please do that. First, let me uh, well, thank you again for this wonderful uh, opportunity, for the time, for the tour, uh, for the meetings. And uh, I look forward very much to continuing the interaction and to welcoming you in India soon. Thank you, Minister. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Chats Over Chai at the Australian Institute. Uh, this has been a conversation with uh, Minister PTR, as he's known, uh, the Finance Minister from Tamil Nadu.